A reading from Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. The reading is from Luke 13, 22 to 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that uh, fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Praise to you. Father in heaven, uh, when we come to Jesus, we find that very often he's, he's confronting us. Um, he's saying things that are, that are difficult to hear, uh, that was off-putting to uh, many of the people that heard him. Sometimes it is to us too. Um, and also, he says many things that are very, very gentle, very, very kind, very, very tender. Uh, Father, will you grant us grace to hear both of them at the same time? Um, and will you... Do whatever it takes in us to make us a fruitful people. And you know what needs to be done in us better than we know what needs to be done in us. So what we ask is, will you give us, by your spirit, a supernatural yes to your work, to your grace? Help us to understand, but incline our wills to say yes to anything you want to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, and uh, it's helpful if you keep both readings in front of you. They're both long readings. We're not even going clo to get close to addressing everything in it. Um, um, however, uh, here at Emmanuel Church, if you've been around here for very long, you know that we like to say we exist to... Um, right? See and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. Um, and one of the aspects of Jesus's beauty uh, that is sometimes intriguing, it's sometimes perplexing, is that very often Jesus holds together things that we tend to keep apart. Um, for instance, and you can see it in this reading, um, 
there are times, and you can see it in our, in our reading, where Jesus is extremely gentle and extremely kind and extremely tender. And uh, those, those bits are often things that, that kind of jump out at us. Uh, they're, they're remarkable. They're easy to read. They're easy to listen to very often. Uh, but on the other hand, there are other times where Jesus is remarkably confrontational. There are times where he's remarkably direct. There are times where he is clearly uh, not hesitant to offend. Do you notice that both of them are in our two readings? A uh, couple examples. If you look on the first reading, if you look at verse 5, find the little number 5. Jesus is talking to a, a bunch of people, and twice Jesus says, Unless you repent, you're going to perish. That's fairly on the nose, isn't it? And then a little bit later in verse 15, uh, he's in the middle of a synagogue service, maybe a little bit like this one, and he addresses the synagogue ruler who has a job a little bit like mine. This makes me uncomfortable. And he calls the synagogue ruler a hypocrite. And it's not just the, hypocrite, uh, the, the synagogue ruler, just so we're clear. That it was apparently a whole contingent of the congregation. Hypocrite. Now, that's pretty offensive. And then if you just flip over to the second reading, in uh, verse 23 and 24, Jesus is talking to some people, and they say, hey, are, Jesus, are a lot of people going to be saved, or just a few people going to be saved? What's, what's the stats that we should expect? And Jesus comes right back, and he says, hey, listen, you're asking the wrong question, and your error is a dangerous one. Um, you need to focus on yourself and whether or not you are amongst the group that's going to be saved. And you need to make sure that you don't take for granted that you're in the group that's going to be saved. And then he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And you can just feel that that must have been super awkward, maybe frightening for the people who were listening. And maybe, maybe even right now, some of us are a little, ooh, that's that grates, or that's frightening. Or... My point is that sometimes Jesus is really in your face, really confrontational. But at the same time, there are, he is remarkably gentle and remarkably kind and remarkably tender. Look at this end of the second reading. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem, and uh, Jesus knows already, he's anticipating that he is going to be arrested, that he's going to be killed when he gets to Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins to grieve. It's very remarkable that we get to watch Jesus grieve out loud. But the thing is, Jesus is not grieving for himself and his death. He's grieving for Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem is um, the capital of the people of Israel. It's the headquarters for the religion of Israel. And Jerusalem was supposed to be a kind of living representative of God and in, in all that he is and so on and so forth. But Jesus can see that Jerusalem was supposed to be this embassy of God's kingdom in the midst of this corrupt world. Jesus sees, no, actually Jerusalem is woefully corrupt tragically corrupt. Pause. Uh, if you find yourself disillusioned with Christianity, 
contemporary Christianity in this country, elsewhere, institutional Christianity, the church. Pay attention to Jesus because he knows all about it. Jesus is grieving because he sees Jerusalem ruining itself. But listen to what he says in the midst of his grief. Look at verse 34. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under, his, under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, there's something terribly sad and tragic in those verses, but I want you also to see the kindness and the gentleness. Do you see it? Jesus says, I'm like a mother. I'm like a mother hen. I'm like a mother hen who wants to protect my young, and I want to spread out my wings over you so that you can rest under my wings and so that I can protect you and so that I can ensure that nothing is going to harm you. But you won't. And just consider that he's talking about the city that he knows is going to turn on him within weeks or days. Jesus, in the midst of that, is big with mercy and big with gentleness and big with tenderness. How do we put together Jesus' confrontation with Jesus's kindness. And what I want to show you today is that they belong together, that you really can't understand one without the other. In fact, they're so intertwined that Jesus's kindness is packaged in his confrontation. And I want us to look at these readings because we need to get to a point where when we hear Jesus confronting us, we need to, to be so confident that his kindness is uh, vested in that confrontation so that we don't evade his confrontation, that we don't sidestep it, that we don't think it's only for other people, but rather we become a people who embrace Jesus's confrontation because we know within it is the kind gift of his grace. That's what I want to show you. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. And to do that, I want to look at a case study. Look over to the first reading, verse 10. Uh, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, a little bit like this, a little bit different, but a little bit like this. And in the midst of the service, while he's teaching, he sees a woman with uh, some sort of remarkable uh, physical ailment. She's bent over in some manner. And Jesus uh, decides to heal her. Jesus heals her. But then oddly, and this is a really important part, the synagogue ruler, the guy that has a little bit of a job, kind of like my job, just blows his top. Just gets really, really mad. Outrageously angry. Now, why? Uh, well, the simple reason is that um, from the synagogue ruler's perspective, um, he had a very long list of what you were allowed to do and what you were not allowed to do on Sabbath day, which is their day of worship, Saturday. And uh, his list of what you could do and couldn't do was an elaborated list. It was a longer list, far more specific than what you get in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But nonetheless, he was very committed to that list of rules. And in his mind, Jesus healing on the Sabbath day was breaking one of those rules. And he says, you're not supposed to break one of those rules. And therefore, he's mad at Jesus. However, 
Jesus can see that there's a bigger story of Sabbath. And there's a backstory to the Sabbath. And let me just review it real quick, okay? Um, the Sabbath shows up in the very beginning of the Bible. At uh, the end of the first chapter of the Bible, you get the Sabbath. And in, in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when, you, when the Sabbath is introduced, it's at the end of God creating the whole world. So you might remember the story, God creates the whole world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. Now, if I had created... You know, if I had gotten that much work done in one week, I'd want a day off too. Um, however, uh, that's not why God rests on the Sabbath. That's not the point. It's not that he just was shattered after a big week of work. Rather, it's that in six days of creation, God had done all the work necessary so that everything was set for him to rest with his people in a relationship of intimacy which was the whole point, the whole point that he had created. Everything that he had done was in order that he might rest with his people in the context of a relationship of intimacy. And therefore, when everything's done, he gets to rest with his people and enjoy everything that he's done. That's Sabbath at the beginning of the Bible. But then Sabbath also shows up in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Only this time, it's a little bit different. Because this time, uh, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God decides to introduce himself to Israel by breaking into their story and by rescuing them. And one of the images used for God breaking in and rescuing Israel is God says, I'm like an eagle. I'm like an eagle, and I'm going to carry you on eagle's wings. Everybody say wings. Remember that. You've already heard it. So anyways, God rescues Israel, takes them out of Egypt, carries them on eagles' wings, and then Israel begins to observe the Sabbath. And when Israel observes the Sabbath every single week, part of the point is that they're meant to remember how God has done all the work necessary so that they can be liberated and enjoy freedom. And the point of that is so that they can rest in relationship with God. Now, keep all that in your mind and come to Jesus, because here Jesus is, he's teaching on the Sabbath day, and he notices this woman who's bent over, perhaps something with her spine, we don't know the details, but it's been going on for 18 years. And somehow, Jesus discerns that this is more than just a random physical issue, that there's a kind of spiritual component, there's a kind of spiritual bondage going on here. Somehow, Jesus can see that this woman, uh, her ailment is an image of being somehow, we don't know the details, captivated by Satan, captivated or held, held under uh, uh, bondage by evil, and Jesus just won't stand for it on Sabbath or any other day. And so just like God did all the work required for creation, and just like God did all the work required for liberating Israel from Egypt, so on this day, Jesus does all the work required so that this woman can be set free and so that she can rest in a renewed relationship with God, which is why after her healing, she begins to glorify God. Put differently, 
Just as God carried Israel on eagles' wings out of Egypt, so Jesus decides to gather this woman under his wings and under his protection like a hen gathers her brood so that she can be set free and so that she can rest and rejoice in Jesus's kindness. What I'm trying to show you is that Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He wasn't breaking one of the rules of the Old Testament. Uh, he was breaking one of the synagogue rulers' particular rules, but rather what he was doing is he was keeping the Sabbath. He was drawing out its inner meaning. Okay, but here's the tragedy. The tragedy is that the synagogue ruler couldn't see it. The tragedy is that he's blind to what's going on. And it's not just that he had like an education problem. It's not just that he needed to be informed that this is an okay thing to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't just he needed uh, a, a little bit more information. The, the magnitude of his anger is a sign that there's a deeper issue going on. There's something down deep in his soul. The, synagogue ruler found the whole thing repellent. There's a kind of deep orientation that looks at a miracle and looks at what Jesus is doing, setting this woman free. And he says, no, not in my synagogue. Do you remember what Jesus said about Jerusalem? How often? Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing? The synagogue ruler is what it looks like when we're not willing to come under the wings of Christ's kindness. And here's the thing that makes it worse. The whole time, he's very convinced that he's right. I mean, he's very self-confident. He's very self-reliant. He's very self-righteous. And the tragedy is that he is also self-deceived. And all that meant that he was blind to the beauty of the miracle that had happened in his synagogue that day. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's friends. It's the tragedy of sin. Okay, but now let's ask a question. What will it take for Jesus to wake up somebody like that synagogue ruler? Because remember, Jesus wants everybody to come under his wings and rest, including self-righteous religious people like this guy. So what's it going to take? And part of the answer is that it's going to take Jesus's confrontation. It's going to take Jesus standing up and publicly saying, synagogue ruler and those in this room who are aligned with his view, you're hypocrites. And that doesn't sound kind to me. Is that, am I the only one? But consider this. Jesus is very, very gentle with this woman. Why? Because it's exactly what she needed to come under his wings. And Jesus is very, very sharp with the synagogue ruler. Why? Because it's exactly what he needs if he's ever going to come under his wings. And what I'm trying to point out is this. 
confrontation is what Jesus's kindness looks like when he needs to wake us up from our self-delusion. And that explains why Jesus is so sharp in the other bits of our reading. So remember, at the beginning of um, the first reading in verse five, Jesus says, if you do not repent, you should anticipate perishing. And he says that twice. And in the second reading, uh, verse 24, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, why does Jesus say these things? Part of it is this. Um, Jesus is really, really direct and confrontational with us sometimes. Um, because a lot of us have a tendency uh, to tell ourselves that all is well, when in actual fact, all is not well. Uh, many of us have a tendency, and we never say this out loud, and we never even say this in our brain, but it ends up being a kind of default setting, an intuition, um, a, a kind of uh, spiritual orientation deep within our souls. And it goes a little bit like this, if we were to say it out loud, which we're usually too polite to do, but it goes something like this. Hey, I might not be perfect, I know, but I mean, I'm better than those folks. I'm better than, for the people around Jesus, I'm better than the ones that uh, Pilate killed. I'm better than the ones who probably won't get into the kingdom of God. And if there is a God there, it, I mean, he kind of needs to let me in. I mean, a person like me, he kind of needs to let a person like, I mean, I, I vote for the right people. I listen to the right podcasts. Um, I, you know, I, I hold the right views. I, I'm outraged by all the right injustices. I'm, and for goodness sake, I'm in church listening to a sermon when I could be at brunch. Um, now, here's the thing. To those of us who think that way, and come on, in Jesus's kindness, he needs to say something like this. The very fact that you are listing out your qualifications like that, especially over and against the people around you, is a signpost that you are not actually deeply taking refuge under my wings. And therefore, it's as if Jesus says, I've got to tell you what's true. And what's true is that you're a hypocrite. And that you really need to repent. And that the gate is narrow. Now, can you hear that as kindness? It's important that we know that when Jesus rebukes us, he's not trying to shame us. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to protect us from everything that can destroy us forever. And he wants to gather us under the protection of his own wings. The tragedy is that we are often unwilling. But here's the remarkable thing. When Jesus is confronted with, at times, the irrepressible unwillingness in his day, that didn't make him unwilling. He didn't stop pursuing. Because in our passage, he's grieving for Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows that there's no chance that they're going to listen to him. But you know what he does? 
He grieves and then he goes to Jerusalem. And he suffers everything that he warns people about in our reading. What, what does that mean? He perishes. He warns people. He says, if you don't re repent, you're going to perish. Well, Jesus voluntarily ends up perishing on the cross. He dies. Uh, Jesus warned people that the door is narrow that leads to eternal life and that it's possible to be uh, shut out from God's presence. Well, on the cross, Jesus voluntarily experienced something in a remarkable way of being shut out of God's presence because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why is he experiencing these things? Because he's not perishing for his own sin. And he's not being shut out of the presence of God because he's careless and missing the narrow door. He's doing all of this on behalf of those who were unwilling to come under his wings of protection. He warned people about being a hypocrite. Well, Jesus died the death a hypocrite deserves. And in the midst of it, while he's experiencing all these things in Jerusalem, he's praying for those who are unwilling, for those of us like the synagogue ruler who are blind. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But then, of course, he rose from the dead and he rose offering those very same people forgiveness and amnesty. Here's what I want you to see. On the cross, Jesus did all the work necessary so that spiritually blind and self-righteous and self-reliant and self-confident and self-deceived people can be welcomed under the wings of Christ's protection and rest, rest with a true Sabbath kind of rest, rest freed from the bondage of evil and Satan in a new relationship with God. Jesus died on the cross so that that synagogue ruler could experience Sabbath for the first time. And you've got to look at that kindness and then listen to Jesus's confrontation. So let me wrap up by asking you a few questions. Here, here, here are the question. Here's, here's one. Um, do you, are, are you kind of, uh, when Jesus confronts you, you know, do, do you, does it grate against you? Or do you, are you fine with it because you really feel like somebody else needs to hear it? If either of those two things are true, um, you need to intentionally cultivate a heart that loves and embraces Jesus's loving confrontation for you. You've got to see that Jesus's confrontation for you, not for the other guy, for you is precisely what his kindness looks like when you're sleepy spiritually or blind. Another question. Um, do you find all this super scary? And I know that there are some of, some of us um, are, are, are almost the opposite. Some of us hear all of this confrontation and you're like, oh my goodness, this is an existential issue for me right now. And you hear it really loudly. Not everybody hears it as loudly as some of us do. So are you frightened? when you hear these things. And if you do, 
you need to remember how Jesus relates to the woman in the synagogue. Jesus is eager to set her free. And when the synagogue ruler gets really, really mad, Jesus puts himself in between the woman and the synagogue ruler. And he's both her healer and her protector. And if you are feeling weak or vulnerable or frightened, you need to see that Jesus is your healer and he is your protector and he is wings are large and they're reaching out for you now. And you need to co take comfort in that. You need to hear the gentle embrace of Jesus, he's a mother hen embracing you. Rest in that. And then last question, are you disillusioned with the church? Um, that, does that question sound out of place? If that question sounds out of place, it, it, it's not because um, Jesus is dealing with the people of God when they were at one of their most corrupt moments in history, right? I mean, they did kill him. And if you're disillusioned with the church, you need to see that Jesus, uh, Jesus knows all about that. Jesus could see the corruption of the people of God in his own day. He could see the compromised nature of the people of God in his own day. And, the, and our church today shares many of those same corruptions. And some of us are terribly disillusioned with the church, whether it be a local church or the church in terms of the nation or in terms of a movement or in terms of around the world, whatever it might be. And if that's where you're at, there's good reason for that. Sometimes the church is like a tree that doesn't bear any fruit. Jesus has a story about that too. And if that's where you're at, you need to look at Jesus and how he grieves for Jerusalem. And you should grieve too. And you should look at how Jesus confronts the people of God in the midst of their hypocrisy. And there's a place to confront the church today too. But here's the caution. Ready? In your disillusionment, don't let it pass into cynicism. And in your grief, do not let it pass into hopelessness. Cynicism and hopelessness must be confronted. And you need to remember the mustard seed story. Verse 18. Mustard seed, it's a little tiny seed. I don't know anything about farming, but I'm told. The commentaries tell me. It's a super tiny, small seed. Uh, and then it grows uh, into something that birds can land on. It goes from small to big, insignificant to significant. Uh, leaven, I don't know anything about baking either, but apparently yeast, you put it in bread and it spreads. Okay. The point is that Jesus gets the work done in and through his church. And for 2000 years, Jesus has been growing his church and he's been spreading the leaven of his grace and his glory and his gospel uh, throughout the church and throughout the world. And at times, yes, the church is woefully compromised and corrupt. And in the midst of that, part of the reason that the mustard seed grows into a tree is because in every generation, Jesus comes to and confronts the church and says, church, you're acting like hypocrites and I won't stand for it. Church, you need to repent or you will perish. Church, the gate is narrow that leads to everlasting life. 
So strive to enter through it. Jesus comes in every generation to confront the church and he comes with his wings of protection, drawing people to rest under his grace. And as we hear his confrontation and as we find refuge under his wings of mercy, then the mustard seed grows and birds come and find their refuge on the tree and find their refuge under the wings of Christ. And Jesus's kingdom will not fail, friends. So don't be cynical and don't be hopeless, but embrace the confrontation of Jesus and rest under his wings and find in him your confidence and your refuge. And we will bear fruit. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.